Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our program. We are in a study called The Final Redemption of Israel. It's about the greater Exodus, and we have gone through several episodes already to this. We are at the point where we're looking and examining when do we expect this final redemption to come to a conclusion. And the short answer is it comes to a conclusion at the end of the age, at the fullness of the Gentiles. But we're looking at some more detail of other prophecies that seem to address this topic. And so we're reviewing there. From last episode, we talked about the first evidence of indicating when is when the final last generation shows up. That's the generation that will be at the end of the age, and they're the ones that are going to be a part of this process. But in addition to that, let me just review the six other elements that we think tell us about when it comes, is events leading to the second coming, specifically the beginning of sorrows. The end is not yet, but it's the beginning of sorrows. We're going to talk about that one in this program, followed by the regional war with the northern army, and that's when God... And the conclusion of that war will make a declaration to end the exile, and the scattering of the of the exiles begin to come back. Number four, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Israel and all of mankind, which comes at the end of the age. The restoration of the two houses of Israel, the reunification of the northern kingdom with the southern kingdom. Next is the start of the Great Tribulation with the abomination of desolation and Passover. And finally, the coming of the Lord, the actual resurrection of the saints, and the first feast in the kingdom, the feast of ingathering or the feast of tabernacles. So we are in the process right now of going through each of those to look about how they give us clues about when the final redemption of Israel comes together. We've covered the last generation and evidences of that in the last program. We're now going to begin to look at what we call the beginning of sorrows. In Matthew 24, at what's called the Olivet Discourse, they were on the Mount of Olives, and Yeshua was posed with some questions, specifically about not only the events with Jerusalem that would be taking place, but what would be the signs of the end of the age and the signs of his coming. And he proceeded to answer it when he came to the subject of the end of the age, here's what he had to say. This is in Matthew 24, verse 4. He begins and says, And Yeshua answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. For the one who endures the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, a lot of people have used this discussion as, oh, these are the signs of the end. And it's true that they lead up to the end. But there's very specific prophecies about the end. And what he's really talking about is the whole atmosphere and the growth of things that will be taking place in the world that this last generation is going to endure, and it will lead into the tribulation. It will lead into all of these things. With regard to the subject of false messiahs and false prophets, that's pretty much a given. 
those that do any serious study on this, we have many examples of that that are throughout the world. There are people, honest to goodness, in other nations running around claiming they're the Messiah. Some of them claim that they've come back, you know, that they're Jesus. It's not that uncommon. And we see this kind of phenomena. I call it phenomena. Actually, it's kind of crazy people that do all these weird things. They try to recreate something in their mind, and they go around and they confuse a few people, I guess, doing some of this stuff. But the ones that we're most familiar with in these beginnings has to do with wars and rumors of wars. That's what you're hearing about. And he says, don't be frightened. These things must take place. But that's not yet the end. We've already, in recent history, in the last century, we had the First World War, we had the Second World War, and then since then, we've had these skirmishes in all these different regions and areas. And today, as we speak, the Middle East is filled with all of this kind of activity, the Middle East conflict, the Arab-Israeli problem, Palestinian problem, the Syrian war, civil war that's taking place, Iran, Iraq, all of these different regions, all these different conflicts that are taking place and all of them are ominous, and it's part of our daily now dialogue with international news that we're finding out, well, who's shooting who and how many people are being murdered and massacred and what kind of terrorist act has taken place and so forth. It goes on to say that there would also be other physiological things happening to the earth, such as famines and earthquakes. And those things are true. We've seen that in this generation. It's leading up. And in the case of earthquakes, why now we're even seeing the tsunamis, which is an earthquake that's in the ocean and it produces the massive wave that goes in and does the damage and so forth. I'm not going to give you the statistics uh, of the increase of earthquakes. Let me just summarize them all by saying the following. No other previous generation has ever seen the number of earthquakes that we're having in the world today. There's been some big earthquakes in the past. There's been volcanoes in the past. There has been tsunamis and floods and other physical, earthly things that have taken place. But in this last generation, the numbers are off the scale. The size of them are off the scale. You can go onto the Internet and you can check and verify this. At any given time, we have anywhere from 15 to 18 volcanoes going on all the time, all over the Earth. And there are cataclysmic events taking place. Let me give you just one that should be getting our attention here in the United States. We tend to think of earthquakes in other places. Sometimes we think of Southern California. But let me just tell you what's so interesting about right here in the heart of our continental United States called Yellowstone. Yellowstone is sitting on top of what they refer to as a super volcano. If that volcano decides to erupt, it has the potential to absolutely ruin more than half of the continental United States, potentially rendering inability to grow food, killing a host of people, and of great danger to the people. If you visit Yellowstone today, you're going to find out there's parts of the park that you can't go into because the ground is too hot. And they believe that the magma level is increasing, rising up. It's making a new stovepipe within the volcano, and there could be the possibility of another eruption. Now, can you get anybody to say that specifically? Heck no. It would, it would cause panic, unbelievable panic. But I'm telling you there are volatile elements of the earth that anybody who has any semblance of paying attention to the obvious would come away with the conclusion and say we live in very interesting times with regard to the health and life of our planet now rather than all of our environmentalist friends going around saying man is causing global climate change and so forth those aren't the real problems that the earth has. The earth has got a whole host of other issues that are far more compelling and far more dangerous than what they're referring to. In fact, they line up with what the scripture says, that earthquakes 
are a major thing that comes with volcanoes, that come with just the movement of the tectonic plates and so forth. I've, I've been watching this all my life, and this is an ever-increasing issue that the Earth is going through and dramatically has increased in this generation. It goes on to say a little bit, it says these are merely beginnings of birth pangs. Birth pangs, that's a wonderful word picture and, and metaphor to use in this because if you've uh, been a parent and you've had your wife have a baby, you know about the contractions, you know about the increasing intensity and the frequency, and you can see the evidence that a birth is about to take place. Well, that's exactly what we see going on. We see these trends, we see these reoccurrences, the frequency, the intensity of each time it happens. It clearly is the birth pangs that we're in, and we can tell that it's becoming more and more serious. Then he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Whether people like to admit it or not, Christians are being murdered all over the world by tyrannical governments who hate God, and literally that's what it is. They hate God, so they hate believers of God, and they try to kill them. In multiple places, there are massacres that have occurred in churches and religious groups. It's coming this way, while here in the Western nations, particularly the United States, we like to pride ourselves on freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and so forth. All of those things are under assault right now. For the first time in my life, we have some of the leaders of the government. We have blocks of citizens. We have people motivating other people to cast away the constitutional freedoms that we have in this country. And one of the major ones they want to go after is the freedom of religion. Some of those who are very opposed to this, they believe that religion is the cause of all of the economic problems in the world, that we're the cause of the reason why there are wars in the world, and so forth. And they, they assign the responsibility to the fact that religion exists. And really what it comes down to is they hate God. They're godless and they hate God. And they hate the idea of God. They do not like the idea of God making rules for life. They want to make the rules, and they want to get rid of God's rules and anybody that supports God's rules. So as the scripture says here, he said, this is going to be an ever-increasing issue, and they will deliver you all the way up to the tribulation and the great distress that will come from that. We are living in those days, and there are people right now in this world who are being killed because of their faith, and it's going to increase. I hate to say this, but my sense of this is in the previous generation we saw the evidence of how the Holocaust happened, what led to it, how it got started, what they actually did, and we're getting ready to have a time of distress as the world has never seen before. That means worse than the Holocaust. And so let us not be naive about that these things are getting ready to happen. When we see these things happening, we see ourselves moving toward this, the beginning of sorrows, as Yeshua called this. Those are the evidences that we're on the brink of the final redemption of Israel. We're on the brink of God finally stepping in and bringing about resolution with the world and to bringing his people back to the land and remembering the covenants and promises that he's made to the fathers to deliver us out of those things. The children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, you know, when they first went down, it was good. They went down with Jacob, and Joseph was in charge, and everything went fine. But shortly thereafter, and the pharaohs that followed, finally they came to a pharaoh that did not remember Joseph and did not remember what had happened previously, and what we are experiencing right now is that we have new people in the world today. They're not remembering history. They're not remembering the history of this country, how it came to be. They're not remembering the history of the world. And as a result, as the saying says, they're doomed to repeat it because they haven't learned from history. I would remind you that most of the Bible is history. We're supposed to read and learn from it 
so that we don't make the same mistakes as those previously to us, that we learn to trust God and not walk in unbelief as others have done before or to be disobedient as others have done before. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, specifically making reference to the exodus out of Egypt and going through the wilderness experience, says to the last generation, now those things that happen in the wilderness are for our admonition and instruction upon whom will fall at the end of the ages. He's talking about the last generation. They have to learn those lessons to be able to get through that situation correctly. So again, these are part of the evidences that lend us to that we're approaching the final redemption as a part of it. It goes on to say here, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Just this last week, I've heard on both sides of the political aisle a call on the part of other people that the hate that's just going on in the United States has got to stop. And the news media have accelerated this and amplified this business. And they are all for supporting that the people are demonizing one another. People are making to the point of saying people shouldn't be permitted to live because the hatred is so great. In the case of our president at the United, at the moment, President Trump, uh, all of the leader, leading major Democratic candidates have all made statements threatening physical violence to him. We've never seen anything like that before. And many voices are now crying out and saying that hate is overcoming us and becoming the dominant thing. That is the beginning of sorrows, that we're coming to the point they will hate you so much, they will deliver you up to tribulation, they will kill you, they'll want to kill you. We're there. And that's exactly what the prophecy said that would be prior to the end. And that's not the sign that the end is now here, but it's called the beginning of sorrows. It's leading into those days when the final redemption is going to take place. The final statement, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. A lot of Christians like to think, oh, the gospel of the kingdom, oh, that's that's preaching Jesus, and let's go to church, and let's all be nice church people. That's not the gospel that's being referred to. The gospel, the good news that's being referred to here is the final redemption of Israel, that the word is out, that God's going to deliver his people, and yes, we're going to have judgment at the end of the age, but the Lord is with us. He'll not forsake us or leave us. He will not forget us. He will remember the covenants. He will keep his promises. He will save and deliver us from what is getting ready to come in the world. So we talked about the last generation. We talked about the beginning of sorrows. Let's shift to the next item, which is a huge indicator that we're coming to the final redemption. It's called the war between Israel and the northern army of Gog and Magog. In Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, the prophet Ezekiel describes there's going to be this future regional war. And all Bible scholars and teachers know this is a war that happens at the end of the age. The clue that gives the dead giveaway of this is that the enemy comes to attack Israel and people in Israel that have returned. Some have returned from the nations, and we know it's a modern time of Israel because the villages are unwalled. In ancient times, a village wasn't a village unless it had a wall around it. In these days, we build villages and towns and so forth. We don't put walls around them. And so we're in a modern time of Israel. And if you've tracked and followed any of the current history of Israel and what's going on in the Middle East, you know very good and well that they are surrounded by enemies. They've had multiple wars. And to the north is the predominant enemies that are on their border. So let me take you to this prophecy. I want to mention it to you. We're in Ezekiel 38. And verses 1 and 2 say the following. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, 
Set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now, this is answering the question, who is it that's going to be the enemy that's coming against Israel? When we use the term Gog and Magog, that actually means Gog and those from or with Gog. And Gog and Magog is mentioned another time in the book of Revelation, even after the Messianic kingdom. And it seems to be this is a title for arch enemies that are against Israel and against the Lord. And in this particular case of this prophecy, it's focused on particularly enemies that are to the north of uh, where Israel is at. So we're talking about Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Russia, including Iraq, including Persia, Iran. All of those regions are the enemies to the north, and uh, those are the ones that are threatening Israel. Those are the ones that would like to wipe Israel off the map, as they've said. They'd like to throw all the Jews under the sea. And the conflicts that we've had in the past, this is what has been going on. In this present day, Iran has been able to focus different proxy groups in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, and in Iran, and even in Gaza uh, through the Hamas terrorist organization to bring about a potential harm to Israel and their stated goal is to destroy Israel and to wipe Israel off the map. So we see the dynamics going on. Now, in the interpretation of who is the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, these were names that just simply indicate these northern elements. So when I repeated to you the different northern nations, the basis of that is from these titles. Those are the ancient names of those various places and uh, the, the, the peoples uh, that are in that area. So that we've identified who's going to be the enemy and who's going to be coming from the north. And when does this happen? Well, it happens in, at the, in the latter years. Let me read to you from Ezekiel 38, beginning at verse 8. And it says this, After many days you will be summoned, referring to the enemy. And in the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which has been a continual waste. But its people are brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. And you will go up, and you will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Now, before I go any further, at the moment, the, the Jewish people that are living in the land of Israel have come from many nations. They are the product of after the Holocaust. Many people have immigrated to the land of Israel. As you know, the history of Israel, they became a nation in 1948. They have developed the IDF. They live securely in the land. They can defend themselves. And you're describing the present situation of Israel, the land of Israel, and the people that are living there accurately based on these words. He goes on to say this, that thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages and I will go up against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls, having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. The center of the world is biblical language for Jerusalem. So it's referring to in the land of Israel in Jerusalem. The mountains of Israel that it's referring to are the Sumerian mountains north of Jerusalem, the Judean mountains that are south of Jerusalem, and that whole mountain range, the backbone of the whole nation of Israel that they're interested in coming down into those mountains and doing that. The spoil they want to take. Do you know that Israel is a very rich nation as compared to all the other nations around them? Now, while a lot of people say, well, you know, they got the land, but everybody else got the oil. In recent days, Israel has discovered 
a natural gas field. It's called the Leviathan gas field. That there's enough natural gas in this field that's just off the coast of Israel and the Mediterranean under control of Israel that it could supply all of the energy for Israel clearly all by itself for the next hundred years and they could sell gas to the Europeans and make an incredible profit and this would be an incredible windfall of revenue for Israel. And that's setting aside all of the high technology companies that Israel has brought forth and they are worldwide in some of these technology companies, in medical sciences, in military sciences, and so forth. And they, are, they have customers in all the nations all over the world for those things. It's a very rich nation, has incredible industry and technology, and there's a lot of countries that are around there that would like that spoil. They would like to own that and have that for themselves. Not the least of which is Russia. Russia wants to sell natural gas and fuel to Europe, and if Israel gets in the business of selling natural gas to Europe, this could get into their business model, and it wouldn't be good for Russia at all. They would lose sales, and Russia right now is wholly dependent on the economics of being able to sell energy to Europe. If all of a sudden that's curbed or cut, they are in economic great danger of being able to sustain themselves. There's other reasons why others are after, but probably the biggest reason is their absolute hatred of Israel and the Jewish people. And that's what this is describing, that they will come down, they'll be very interested in destroying where they live and also capturing spoil from them. Now, where does the attack come from? The prophecy goes on to say, Ezekiel 38, verse 15 and 16, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, so that obviously they're going to be very mobile. And by the way, modern warfare is mechanized and mobile. A great assembly and a mighty army, and you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes. Now, it turns out there's another agenda at work here. The enemy wants to come into Israel, destroy Israel, the Jewish people, destroy the nation of Israel, capture spoil. God apparently is going to allow this to unfold. Why? Because God is going to use this situation to manifest himself and reveal himself to the world, and this is part of the scenario of the final redemption. The Redeemer is getting ready to show himself in a totally, completely different way. When the Messiah came the first time to do sacrifice for our personal redemption, he used language like brother and friend and personal and kindness, and it was soft and it was very, very easy uh, to do it. He was not violent. He never picked up a sword. There was nothing where he would force anyone to do anything. He would speak, and sometimes you'd get upset, but you could either accept or reject. He didn't force you to do anything. When the Redeemer comes this time, he's going to be carrying a sword, and he's going to come back as a warrior king, and not as a priest doing sacrifice, but as a king delivering his land. And it's a completely different dynamic. Do you remember that psalm I read to you about the, the son of David and about how that he would rise up and that his enemies would be uh, scattered and defeated and that he would rise above all of his enemies in the world? Well, this is part of the final redemption. This is even before the Messiah comes back and has the day of the Lord, the Messiah is going to be revealing himself. God is the God of Israel is going to be revealing himself is that he can be triumphant in war and in battle. In the Old Testament, we see many stories of Israel getting to battle with enemies, God delivering his people. We're getting back to those days. We're going to get back to when the God of the Old Testament, as people think of, is going to be appearing again. And in, in particular, it's going to be available for us all to see together 
when we have this battle in Israel in these last days from this northern army. Now let me read to you further what God specifically says he's going to do, and you'll get the sense of just how the Redeemer is going to change on us a little bit here and move into this mode. This is from chapter 38, beginning at verse 18. It says this, It will come about on that day when Gog comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger, and in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. Now, we're not talking about a giant physical earthquake. What we're talking about is God's going to manifest himself in the course of this battle that will literally shake everything. The, the idea that God has showed up for this battle. And, and Israel has always been very successful in warfare, but they're going to even be even more so, and it will be dramatically and strategically different from anything that's ever taken place. I'm going to tell you what the punchline is very quickly. It says when he gets done with this battle, everybody in the world will be saying the following things. Surely there's a God in the midst of Israel. And I'll show you that verse here very shortly. That's how dramatic God's involvement in this battle is going to unfold. Let me go further as to what he has to say further here in Ezekiel 38 where we're at. He says, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on all of my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. You already know that the Arab nations like to fight each other even more than they like to fight Israel. Apparently, in the course of this battle, one of the phenomena that's going to take place, the enemy is going to kill the enemy. And it's going to be witnessed by everybody that it was this judgment that hit them is they will, it's not the IDF that's going to be the big hero here. It's going to be obvious that this is what God has done. He says, he continues, with pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I believe that's modern warfare and a multitude of explosions of weapons. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord." God's actually going to use this battle to reveal himself. Let me take you back in history for a moment because God has done this before. In the case of the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, God dispatched Moses and Aaron there to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he brought them out with great judgments, it says. Stop and think about this for a moment. God is all-powerful. He can do all kinds of things. If the real goal of the children of Israel was to be delivered from Egypt, if that was the singular goal, I have a whole new plan for God on how to do this. I, all he has to do is just blind the Egyptians for a few days, and Israel gets up and walks out, and they escape. But that's not what happened. Instead, God used a series of judgments and all the time, Moses and Aaron are saying to Pharaoh and the Egyptians that you might know the Lord. And essentially, those judgments, if you do a study on them, you'll find out that each of them are on some of the gods of Egypt. And so he was proving that what you think is God is not God, I'm the Lord. And some of the emphatic statements and proclamations made by Moses were things like Pharaoh so that you might know I'm in the midst of all of Egypt. And then another judgment says, so Pharaoh, you might know that I'm in the midst of the whole world. 
you know, I am much bigger than any of your gods. I am much bigger than anything that you understand. I'm even bigger than you, Pharaoh. And the only reason why you're still alive is so they can use you to manifest me to the rest of the world. That was the reason why I did it. God's going to do the same thing here. God is going to allow this battle to unfold to a certain extent so that the world will be focused, paying attention to what's going on in this war, in this battle. I'm also of the opinion that there's a good possibility the enemy in the initial contact will have success of invading the land of Israel, coming into major regions of the land, and it appearing to be, appearing I say, that Israel is about to collapse when God shows up. And so everybody's focused, everybody's watching, and the Lord says, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations. They will know I am the Lord. Now, the, the victory is going to be overwhelming. And in fact, it goes into the prophecy, it goes into chapter 39, talking about the review of the battle and what really took place. Chapter 39, beginning of verse 1, it says, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around, drive you on, take you up from the remotest parts of the north, bring you against the mountains of Israel, and I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash your arrows from your right hand, and you will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the peoples who are with you. I, I want to hold at that point that the language here is absolutely fascinating compared to the present situation we have in the Middle East. If I were to give you a review of what appears to be the strategy of the nations that are to the north, let me tell you what I think is going to be happening in the battle. The nations to the north and the new form of modern warfare is to launch a lot of rockets and missiles at a target. What this does is it endangers all of the population of the region you're attacking. All of the civilians have to go into bunkers and protection. It is also highly disruptive for any military operations that would be in the land, such as an Air Force base, moving troops, convoys, whatever. It's highly disturbing. Everybody has to duck and cover. And if you've got 10,000 missiles and rockets flying into your country, all exploding in all kinds of different places and strategic points and so forth, it forces you down. It, in other words, it, it drives you down into cover, which is the perfect cover for then troops to rush into your territory and, and seize control of the land. In modern warfare, this is simply heavy artillery, and then troops go in after the artillery barrage and they occupy the ground. Today's technology is missile warfare, and we see this constant battle between Israel and Gaza in particular, where Gaza keeps shooting rockets and missiles, and Iran is committed to building rockets and missiles. They're trying to supply Hezbollah in Lebanon. And right now, the word is that in Lebanon, there is believed to be at least 100,000 missiles and rockets. In Gaza, there's a very large number of them as well. And Israel is hard-pressed. If all of a sudden those are being launched and all of those happen, it's highly disruptive to the land. People have to evacuate. They have to go into bunkers. The military has just thousands and hundreds of targets that they have to go after because now the, the war is now to go after the launchers and shoot down the missiles. And Israel's been developing anti-missile technology. I'm sure you've heard of Iron Dome. Strategically, that's what the plan is. We've never seen a war, a full-blown war, carry all this out. But that is what is building into the land of Israel and this particular war. I want you to note the language that God uses here. I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. Missile technology has a launcher and it has a missile. 
And the way you effectively defeat it is you have to kill both. You have to kill the launcher so they can't load another weapon, and you have to shoot down the missile that was coming at you. So you, you got two targets where they're shooting one weapon. The language here tells me that Israel is going to be successful. God is going to be a part of this, obviously, going to be successful in defeating that method of warfare. Let me take you back to the Gulf War. Remember when Iraq was shooting Scud missiles into Israel and the technology of trying to shoot them down, and they were successful in some cases and not in others, and, and the whole Iron Dome thing, shooting down rockets and so forth. Israel has been developing the technology, advanced technology, I might admit, to you, that is, has the ability to shoot down those incoming elements. But they're also working very hard on how to identify the launchers and to kill those at the same time. Back in the Gulf War, this was a very difficult situation because we just didn't have the right assets to be able to see from space the launch because that's what you got to have. You have to have a, pro, a, a system that can sense and see it from space. Since the Gulf War, that has all changed. Israel does have a space-based system now looking at that. I find this information to be fascinating primarily because two things. One, it matches the language of the prophet who's speaking of things before any even such technology exists. So he uses the language that he understands. There's a bow which launches the arrow, and then there's the arrow. Well, you have the launcher and you have the missile. And so he's using that language to describe here in the modern times what's going to take place. Only now, in this generation, in the recent last 10 years, has such technology really been built that can make these words come true. When I used to read these in earlier days, I would say, well, it's going to have to be a supernatural event on the part of God. Not now. It can be providentially done by God now. And it's even more probable to happen. Those are indicators if this war is the war that's connected with the final redemption and the final events of the end of the age, we can see the evidences that this prophecy is spoken true and correctly. And in particular, I want you to take you into the rest of the prophecy where it talks about some very special conditions because it goes into a definition of cleaning up the battlefield. And this is utterly fascinating that Ezekiel continues on in chapter 39 saying it actually it spends more scripture explaining the aftermath of the battle rather than the actual battle. And I think there's a good possibility that's the way the battle will come off. The battle will be very quick. It will be very decisive. But the aftermath of the, of the battle is what we're going to be dealing with in the world. From Ezekiel 39, beginning at verse 9, it says the following. Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers and bows and arrows and war clubs and spears, and for seven years they will make fires of them. It will take a long time to destroy all of these weapons that were involved in this process. They will not take wood from the field or gather firewood from the force, for they will make fires with the weapons, they will take spoil of those who despoiled them and will seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. On that day, I will give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by the east of the sea, and it will block off those who would pass by, so that they will bury Gog there with all of his horde, and they will call it the valley of Hamangog, for seven months, the house of Israel will be bearing them in order to cleanse the land. Now, this is where it gets really fascinating. Even all the people of the land will bury them, and it will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord. They will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who are, who are passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it, at the end of seven months, they will make a search and so forth. They will designate a particular area to bury all of them, and they will have these special burial teams, and everybody will be involved in this process. So let's back up for a moment. 
Remember I told you that when God shows up on this one, this will be an incredible victory. And if I were to say, well, I think God is going to use providential means to do this. In other words, we don't just get a zap from heaven that goes down and zaps all of them at the same time. That God will use things that he's, has, Israel has developed. And because he has spoken it beforehand, we'll know it was the Lord that did it. But it may be, in fact, providential means. So what am I really saying? Well, let's see. If Israel believes that an enemy has invaded and they're under attack on these missile technology and they just cannot get out from under it, they keep hitting them, and the sky is just filled with missiles coming in all the time, and they can't shoot them all down, and it's immobilizing the whole country, and the country is about to collapse because of all of this, the government of Israel has already stated their intention on this. They have weapons that they will bring out that will end the war. And those weapons probably will be in the class of nuclear weapons. And the only people who have ever used nuclear weapons in combat, of course, are the United States against Japan. And it could be that Israel will use nuclear weapons and decisively win the battle. If that be so... Well, you would have a major problem of battlefield cleanup because nuclear weapons tend to come with radioactivity, and you have to do special burial procedures if you have radioactive material. There has to be special things that take place. Certain zones are kept. They may select a burial point, which will then become radioactive, and they will just make a burial point for there, and they won't use it for any other purpose into the future. Israel has extreme technology, let me just say this to you, in what are called micro-nukes, micro-nuclear weapons. Most of the big superpowers, we have big nuclear weapons, megaton weapons. Israel has been developing smaller weapons so they can tactically be used in, because they have a small country and they have small regions and they can't just blow up a nuclear weapon and wipe out half of the whole country. And it appears to me that if God were to use providential means to do this, we could see a very decisive nuclear war in which Israel absolutely takes the enemy out. And we're not only talking about those that came into the land of Israel, but take out all the areas and where all the launchers are at and all the different regions of the countries that participated in it, and they will be wiped out, and there would be an incredible major battlefield cleanup as a result of those actions. The language of this prophecy seems to indicate that. Now, for those who say, gee, I hope we never have a world in which nuclear weapons ever go off, I agree with you, but I'm repeating to you the language of the prophecy, the description that's coming from the ancients trying to describe it. Now, let me get to the last part because this is the best part of this whole prophecy. In Ezekiel 39, beginning of verse 21, this is where God is going to reveal himself to the nations and to Israel. He says the following words, and these are very profound. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed in my hand, which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know I am the Lord their God from that day onward. That is an incredible statement. While I would like to say all of my brethren in Israel, all of the Jewish brethren and, and others of Israel, all know about the God of Israel, the truth of the matter is that, oh, they've heard the history, but they don't really believe in the God of Israel. They're not sure that God really operates anymore anyways. And here it says, no, that's going to change. Israel is going to know at this point from here on out that there is a God in Israel. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me, and I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness, according to their transgressions, I dealt with them, and I hid my face from them. Now, when we stop and say, okay, well, what really is Israel and what happened to Israel, we're going to realize, whoa. Hasn't Israel been scattered in the nations? Yes, they have been. In fact, we're still scattered in the nations. Why? 
because we disobeyed the Lord. We disregarded him. And God said through the prophets, if we forget him, disobey him, he would destroy us as a people living in the land. He would scatter us to our enemies. Guess what? We disobeyed the Lord. Guess what? We went into exile. He's reminding everybody that's what happened to Israel. That's historically what's happened to Israel. Now, what is the Lord going to do now? Beginning at verse 25, chapter 39, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they have perpetrated against me, and when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. And I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. This is the moment at the, in the conclusion of this battle. This is the moment that God says, okay, enough of the exile. I'm going to bring all of Israel back. Now, that is going to be an incredible day. In fact, that is part of the definition of what we call the gospel, the good news. The good news is God is taking us back. He's bringing us back. He's going to, the punishment is over. And the Lord said that Israel would receive double for its punishment. They clearly have being scattered in the nations as long as they have all that's taken place. But clearly God is starting to bring Israel back. And then he's going to make this definition, and all of Israel is going to be ultimately making there. Now, how do we all get there? Well, that's part of what the final redemption of Israel is all about. It's how we get gathered, how we get brought back, the events that will unfold. And eventually, when the Messiah returns, we're all going to be in Jerusalem looking at him when he walks into Jerusalem. We will all be there together, all of us that are believers in the Lord. It's incredible how this ties together. So the reason why this prophecy, this battle, is tied into the final redemption is you got to have the declaration of the end of the exile before you can have the gathering of all the saints that come from all the nations. And this is the reason why in the days that we're living in, the last generation, we pay very, very close attention to the events of Israel with its neighbors, particularly the threatening neighbors that are threatening to have a war with Israel, all this technology that's coming to bear, and the war that is about to take place in Israel. That's what we focus in and watch on to see the fulfillment of these prophecies. All right, we have covered the first three items. In our next program, we're going to talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and how it has a part in the final redemption of Israel. I look forward to seeing you in the next program. Shalom, everyone.